What's going on, podcasting world? And welcome to episode 100 of the Woo. Core Console RX podcast. I'm with Cole Swanson, as always, just like from the start back in December of 2017, January of 2018. Some, yeah. Somewhere around there. Somewhere around there. Um, but today, for episode 100, we figured we'd bring in the big guns. Uh, you know, the, the, when people think of clinical pharmacy, this is what they think of. It's Dr. Wayne Wirt. Dr. Wirt, what's going on? Oh, guys, you guys, are, you guys embarrass me. I've been around a long time. Yeah, I've been around since the beginning. But uh, I've been blessed to be part of this movement for almost 50 years. And uh, I couldn't be happier to be on with you guys. You guys make me very, very proud. Yeah, we're super excited to have you on. Been talking about it for, what, 100 episodes? Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Now, since I'm quarantined, can't go anywhere, we can make it happen. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Everybody else can't take your time, so we force you to sit there on the phone and talk to us for a little bit. <laughs> no problem. So, Dr. Ward, you have a PharmD, you are a board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist, you are a fellow of the American Pharmacists Association, as well as a fellow of ASHP. Um, so you've done quite a bit um, in your career, and I kind of want you to, if you can, um, we could probably talk for the next two or three hours just about your uh, kind of journey through pharmacy, but take us back to the beginning, like, because when, you know, we kind of take it for granted now as far as the PharmD program and the whole idea of a clinical pharmacist, uh, but that hasn't always been the case. So uh, take us back to like the beginning when, how did you first decide to go into pharmacy? Interesting discussion, and uh, I'll share you with my uh, short version, but when I was in high school, I had nobody in my family involved in healthcare. They've never been involved. My great-grandmother was uh, a nurse during World War I, but that was it, and I had no experience. I had nobody suggest I go into healthcare, and I was in ninth grade. I was a freshman in high school. And I started to go to a Youth for Christ rally on a regular basis and volunteer and started to ask God, God, what do you want me to do with my, my life when I go to college? And all of a sudden, I got this vision that I wanted to go to pharmacy school and I wanted to teach pharmacists and physicians how to use drugs. And nobody didn't know anybody had ever done it. Uh, so I went and I got a part-time job in Cinnamons and Drug when I was in high school, Cinnamons in New Jersey, and it was called Cinnamons and Drug. Bernie Morgenstern was the, uh, the guy who owned the pharmacy, and I started out sweeping floors and stocking shelves and working the soda fountain. And then when I got old enough to have my driver's license, I got to drive a uh, Volkswagen Beetle that had a little mortar and pestle on top and make deliveries for him. And, but almost never got to work in the pharmacy back where Bernie was, but that's, that's how I got started. And then Bernie one day said, so you want to have a pharmacy like this one day? And I looked at Bernie and said, no, Bernie, that's not what I want to do. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to teach doctors and pharmacists how to use drugs. And he looked at me and said, boy, you smoking pot? That's not what we do. <laughs> True story. <laughs> True story. He said, you smoking pot, boy? And I had never smoked pot in my life. <laughs> no, I wasn't smoking pot. <laughs> but that's how I got started. That's great. So, I mean, because you're right. Like at that point, there was no 
you know, PharmD to consult when it came up for the problem and stuff. So it literally was just that simple. You just had this idea of, um, you know, what you were going to do and that was it. Never, no looking back, went for it. Right. And I applied to three different pharmacy schools. I applied at the University of Georgia, applied at University of South Carolina in Columbia, and applied at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And the only one that accepted me was Georgia. So I went to University of Georgia, and that's where my mom had grown up. She was from Comer, Georgia, 17 miles from Athens. So I'd been to the campus there before. And so I went to UGA, went to pharmacy school. It was back during Vietnam War. And my draft number was very high. It was like 300 and plus. Mm. But I, I went into Army ROTC at Georgia for four years and went to summer camp at Fort Bragg. And I was at summer camp when uh, they walked on the moon the first time. Nice. And I remember we had the weekend off that weekend. And I was staying at a motel with uh, my roommate. And we watched them walk on the moon. And I just got married that uh, the year before. So we had only been married about a year. And then uh, decided I was going to go in the Army first and let the Army pay for me to do a residency and get my PharmD. So my senior year in the BS program at Georgia, BS in pharmacy at the time was five years, I was in Army ROTC and I'd got a deferment and I applied for the PharmD program at Philadelphia with Dr. John Gans. He accepted me and then I got accepted into the residency program at MUSC at the same time. And I called John and I said, John, I'm going to do the residency before I come into your PharmD program and then plan to go in the Army. And he said, boy, if you do that, you do that residency, you will never come into my PharmD program. I said, yes, I will, John. So he didn't believe me, but he said, I'll hold you a spot. So I did the residency and the military, the Army decided they didn't want me, gave me a discharge. So I went to Philadelphia and did the two-year post-BS PharmD after that. So that's that's my pharmacy education career. So Georgia, MUSC for a year, residency, and then up to Philadelphia for two years to get my post-BS PharmD. So around, around what time was that? Because when people think PharmD, they think late 90s, early 2000s, because that's probably when they start to hear about it. But this was way before well, that, right? My BS in pharmacy was 1971. Uh-huh. My residency was 71, 72, and I got my PharmD in 1974. At the time, there were only a handful of PharmD programs in the country. Uh-huh. Tennessee, Michigan, California, Philadelphia. So there were, were not a whole lot of them around at the time. So at that point, the, the residency program, how, how many pharmacists were doing residencies in, at that time? I can't imagine very there were very many. And it was only, it was a hospital pharmacy residency. It was not a, it's not specialized. You, the only residency that was around at the time was a hospital pharmacy residency. And what was fascinating is that MUSC took, for the first time that year, they took four residents, and all four of us were classmates of Georgia. We all had our BS degrees from the same place when we all came to Charleston together. Oh, that's cool. And it was Lee Evans, who ended up to be dean at Auburn, who's just retired. Leon Long, who was on the faculty 
Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, and Herman Lambert, who became a hospital pharmacist director up in Pulaski, Virginia, and myself. And those three guys all went to get a PharmD as well after the residency. They went to all went to University of Tennessee, and I went to Philadelphia. Right. Nice. So, so, so what, that, that's my pharmacy career as far as education. So what was the, you know, in, in the 70s, I mean, because Cole's right, like when I think of a PharmD program, I'm thinking like early 2000s. So at the time, like when, I mean, was a PharmD something that people were even aware of, like in the medical, like were MDs and, um, you know, nurses and stuff aware of what a PharmD was back then? For the most part, no. There were a few. Uh, Max Ray, who was our residency preceptor here at MUSC in 71, had gotten his PharmD from University of Tennessee. So he was one of the early PharmD graduates. So he was here. John Gans and the guys at Philadelphia had their PharmDs, all from PCP. So they were all graduates of that program. And California had had it for quite a while, but the other schools were just coming back on board. But the Doctor of Pharmacy PharmD degree actually goes back to before the turn of the century. That's there was a PharmD degree back around 1900. I was going to say turn of which century? So you're talking about the yes. turn of the turn of 19th, 19th century. Wow. Yes. 20th century. 20th I, century. So I, I, there I was a PharmD degree there, and it was actually an extra one to two years after you got a PharmG degree, or PhD, a pharmacy graduate degree. Huh. Interesting. And physicians could go after medical school for one additional year and get a PharmD in addition to their MD degree. Really? That was available here at MUSC back then, around 1900. Oh, that's pretty. That's a sweet deal. Five, five <laughs> years of graduate. One extra then, year, and you get the extra doctor. Yeah, I'd, I'd go for that one. Yeah, I would have jumped yeah. on that too. But then, but then it kind of fell apart and went away. And then they brought in the four-year BS degree. Then they made it a five-year degree before we went to the six-year all-farm D. So I had a five-year BS and a two-year post-BS PharmD, and a one-year residency. Hmm. Do you suspect that eventually it's going to be pretty standard there? I mean, I feel like it's already kind of going that way, but um, pretty standard where everyone's going to have a bachelor's degree before even getting into the PharmD program? It's moving that way, but it was I had to have a Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy before you could get into the PharmD program. Yeah, because I always get surprised when I see some of these uh, – P3s and P4s, and I find out they're like 23, like Cole was. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> How in the world did you get there that quick? Yep. But um, so, you know, one of the things that I feel like I hear as far as complaints from, you know, younger, um, especially clinical pharmacists now, is that they, in some, in certain cases, it's getting significantly better, but in some cases, they feel like, you know, their, their MD colleagues, in some cases, especially the older generation ones, don't ever always see their value or feel the need to ask them questions or consult with them. I imagine it's much worse or much better now than it was in the past. I mean, how did how did the other like MDs that were your age at the time, you know, take a PharmD that many of them maybe not even have heard of uh, as far as being on the team? How was that? Well, I can give you a couple of examples. I've had some really great relationships with some of my family physicians over the years. And there's one of them who's now in Columbia, who's a retired Army uh, doc, who was, his name was Roland J. Weiser. They called him Dr. Bud Weiser when they 
page team over the uh, the uh, hospital sound system says paging Dr. Weiser, Dr. Budweiser. <laughs> and he was the son of a Methodist minister and Perfect. really great, great guy. Loves to sing. And he and I worked together in family medicine at West Virginia the first year their program was started, which was 1974. And I went there in pharmacy and my practice site was to be family medicine. So before I was there a year, they offered me a joint faculty position in family medicine, but Bud and I put together a program called the Activated Patient, where we actually had patients with diabetes or high blood pressure or cholesterol would come in and we have educational programs with them in the evenings or on a weekend, and he'd talk about the disease state, I'd talk about the drug therapy. And so we did that for a couple of years, and... He left and went back into the Army, and I left and came to Charleston. But that was really one of the first guys that I really got very close to in medicine. He was an internist who decided to do family practice and was a great, great guy and encouraged me to, uh, to go on and do what I thought I was called to do. But he told me, he said, the key to your success, Wayne, is you don't just answer my question. You tell me why you give me this reason or you give me the background, what's the data to support that recommendation? Since nobody does that in medicine, my colleagues, when I ask them a question, don't give me the why. They answer my question and they accept, accept it and go on. And I can honestly tell you that is my number one key to success in our profession, being able to explain why and give them the reason why that's your answer to their question. Same thing happened here at MUSC. When I came here in 1979 in family medicine for Dr. Carrig in the College of Pharmacy, I met Dr. Ben Goodman, another family doc, former Army guy again, who was from North Carolina. And Ben was the director of the residency, and we'd have checkout rounds twice a day, at the end of the morning clinic, the end of the afternoon clinic, and I'd sit in, and I'd start answering questions about drug therapy that the residents were asking for the patients they saw during that half a day in the clinic with my PharmD students at the time. And Ben told me one day, he said, Wayne, you know, I used to go back to my office and check what you said to make sure you were right. He said, I didn't want to believe you. <laughs> I did not want to believe you. <laughs> he said, you're like a Xerox machine on wheels, man. You give me the, you give me the article the next day. <laughs> said, I, could, awesome. I could never, I could never fool you. He said, "That's why you're so good at this, is <laughs> because you would share the information." Why? So let's let's talk about when you first finished all of your schooling. So just a little bit before you got involved with these guys, I can only imagine that when you went to apply for your first job, they might have been like. Well, we don't really need a dispensing pharmacist. And you were like, no, I want you to pay me to give you knowledge. I, I imagine that was probably hard to convince somebody to, to pay you just well, to teach them went, stuff. Well, that's why I went and applied for jobs in colleges of pharmacy right. to start with, to teach pharmacy students. That's where I, and my practice site hopefully was going to be in primary care, family medicine. Right. I gotcha. Gotcha. So that's, that was my, that was my goal to go into primary care, family medicine, because Family docs are also a unique breed of cat. They're seeing from conception to the grave. They are not the expert for everything they see along the way. 
they're used to consulting other people, and I felt like I could really help them when it came to the drug therapy side right. in primary care. So have you, because that's one thing that you are uh, obviously very well known for is your ability to just answer any sort of question, but not just like the guideline answer, but like where that came from, what the data says. I've seen you say, oh, that oh, that came out in September of 1994, and, and you start quoting the article. Have you always been like very detail-oriented like that and, and able I've to- I've tried kind of, to be. Okay. Because I had to go back and double-check myself to make sure, and I provide the reference if they wanted it. I'd give them the data. What made- so they didn't have to accept what I said. I'd actually give, send it to them. I'd put them in their mailbox or hand it to them the next day. So that way you weren't having to like say that, you know, or justify that it was your opinion or something like that. You're showing that this is an opinion. This is data. Right. right. Yeah, that's good. Um, and I, I have to say I had a, I had a, a pharmacy resident in Bar and Grill one time that said, I was asking, you know what Bar and Grill's like where we present cases and <laughs> oh, we yeah. talk about oh, yeah. the data. And I have to say that Mike is the only student I've ever had who continues to come to Bar and Grill <laughs> after, after he graduates. And he, he's wonderful to have with us, but he's still coming and still contributing and contributing to my education as well. Oh, well, let's not but, get carried away there. <laughs> but I, but Bar and Grill has been said, great. The guidelines say this is what we're supposed to use. And I asked the resident, I said, why does the guidelines say that? What's it based on? I don't know. It's what the guideline says. I said, that's not good enough. If you don't understand what the guideline's based on, then you really shouldn't be quoting just the guideline. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, that's one of the things that has helped me out so much. And, and you mentioned, you know, that your favorite three letter word, why um, yes. that, I mean, to, to, you know, not just to sound like a complete suck up or something, but that, that lesson from you that I learned, like right as I was about to graduate completely changed, I feel like my career because it wasn't until like that point when I started coming to bar and grill and, um, hearing you not only explain the answers to something, but actually go into the deep detail of like how you came up with that answer that completely changed how I look at everything when I'm continuing my own education and, and reading and doing looking through journals and everything. Um, so that's, yeah, I, I honestly, I can't thank you enough for like passing that on. Cause that definitely has changed uh, a, a lot in my career, in my short career so far. Well, I can't, I can't answer a question unless I feel comfortable to answer why. I do have a question. Some, sometimes I feel like I, I'm very confident in, you know, an answer cause it's backed up in data but sometimes I get a little concerned about my confidence because over the years, sometimes new data arises and it turns out that you weren't as right as you thought you were, or you might've been completely wrong, but you were going based on this data. Have you, have, have you had experiences where you had like a solid recommendation based on some data and then something came out and it was like, oh, that was a really bad recommendation? Yep. And <laughs> it's happened multiple times. It's going to continue to happen. And it's the reason I try and keep up with stuff every day. If I don't keep up, then I am not going to be current and not be able to make the best recommendation to help my provider help their patient. Right. So, yeah, we have to, we have to find a way to keep up. And that's hard to do on a daily basis, especially in a very busy practice. Right. Yeah. What, um, what made you start asking, you know, why with all this, 
you know, with the pharmacology and down to the biochemistry and all that. Um, have you just always kind of just been geared that way or is that something you kind of just had like a aha moment and realized that how important that was? Probably goes back to when I was a PharmD student at Philadelphia because we had our own bar and grill back then with our faculty preceptor and when I was on the internal medicine services at Jefferson, I had to present every week to the chief medicine resident. And they were always asking the question, why? Mm. And it dawned on me that if I can't answer the question, why, I'm not going to be successful and I'm not going to be able to convince them to do what I've recommended. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's one of the, uh, I have, I feel like I have this conversation monthly now with my students because you know, one of the things, cause they're, they're bombarded with all this information from pharmacotherapy. It's all new stuff coming to them. And so they, I often hear the, um, I guess I don't want to say excuse, but whatever you want to call it of, well, you know, I, I just don't have like, why do I need to learn the names of trials or these trials? Like I just, I know the pharmacotherapy. Um, and so that's, you know, as long as I can answer the right answer, who cares? Um, and I have that same conversation now, which I've, I just basically just repeat stuff I've heard you say over the years, but (laughs) you know, it's, it's basically just that, like you want these physicians, especially ones that have 20 years clinical experience to take you seriously and to actually utilize you as a clinical pharmacist, you better be able to explain your answers and back up what you're talking about to show that you know what you're talking about. And that doesn't come from just reading a guideline. (laughs) No, it doesn't. And in fact, there's, there are several things I give you in examples of in the past when a primary care physician might ask three or four different people what recommendations they would have, and the one they're going to use is the one that gives them the documentation for right. why that's the answer. So if you, that's our key to success. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't have that, then why should they ask me? Right. right. I mean, if, they ask, if they're used to asking you and you provide the resource and explain why, who are they going to ask next time? Right. Exactly. And all you have to do is put yourself in their shoes because if they're trying to make a decision, yep. they want to be able to back it up too. Whether right. whether they you know know what's right or you know just clinically, they want to be able to back it up, and so they can put in their note that it's based on this trial and this data that I'm making this decision. So it's helpful for them. And the other thing that we have to always remember is what we say today is based on where we were today, but it's subject to change yesterday if you've read about it yet. Right, right. <laughs> I like <laughs> it that. It changes that fast. Yep, yep. <laughs> so, so I have to give you a – here's a caveat with this recommendation. It could change when there's new information to come about because mm-hmm. sometimes, we, just like albuterol – who would have said we're going to use Fomoterol as our primary rescue inhale? Right, exactly. Right. Uh, you know how many you know how many stares I got when I was first describing that at Better. <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, yes. we should. We can use Simbacor PR." And they they looked at me like, "Are you insane?" Yeah, I was like, I, I, "I promise, this is not my idea. This is <laughs> people much smarter than me came up with this." <laughs> That's right. I was a, that was beta blockers for heart failure. Yeah, used to be contraindicated. Oh, yeah, I, I, didn't, right. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I forgot. Oh yeah. Uh, it was contraindication to use beta blockers in RFA. Back in the days we used DIG and then we started with ACEs. Mm-hmm. Beta blockers were the third drug to add now. And based on the evidence, but before that they were contraindicated because they're negative inotropes, negative chronotropes. Don't want to use it, reduce DF heart failure. Yeah, so that's, that's what I was taught. <laughs> yeah, that's uh that's that's 
that's what I'm always so stunned about is how quickly it's changing. I feel like it's getting at even more of a rapid pace now that with technology is. and stuff. Um, I was actually just, I had a career mentoring, um, a, like Skype interview with a student today. There's a P2 and she was talking about like keeping her, like asking me if I would like re- recommend like keeping her notes and stuff like that. And I said, keep them, you know, through pharmacy school. But after that, they're probably going to be way too old. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I found mine, uh, actually, my pharmacotherapy notes, I was cleaning up my office and I found my old notes from, you know, six, seven years ago. And I was, I just flipped through it and I was like, oh my gosh, look at this crazy stuff we were like. They'll steer you wrong. Yeah. <laughs> they really will. All we had when I had heart failure when I was in school was dig and diuretics. There was nothing else. Wow. Oof. And then asthma, we did theophylline and uh, inhaled isoperturinol, isopromistometer and theophylline. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I remember correctly, you were telling me a story. I don't remember when this was, but you were telling me a story of back in the day using loading doses of warfarin in the hospital. Yes. 35 <laughs> to 50 milligrams orally and sometimes really? IV. Oh, <laughs> how did uh, how'd that work out? <laughs> they bled a week later. <laughs> That's crazy. And it didn't work any faster. Right. <laughs> Oh, man. We did that. There's a lot of things we've done in the past that we don't do anymore. (laughs) Can you think of any other things like that that are just like vastly different from how we do now that you could share, like just off the top of your head? Oh, let's see. Well, we used to use the the dig with a loading dose. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't didn't reduce the dose based on renal function, and we should have. we used to use like theophylline in huge doses, and then we get seizures. Uh, we used to use uh, IV ethanol to prevent uh, seizures or alcohol withdrawal. Really? Give them, yeah. Yep. IV mm. ethanol. How'd that work? <laughs> <laughs> it works. There's some you people who'd probably ask for that right now. <laughs> Man. Uh, so but yeah, we used a lot. We used lots of different things in the past that we don't use anymore. Thank goodness. Yeah, our blood pressure drugs in the old days were awful. Yeah, I mean, we had uh, guanethidine that only works when you're upright; doesn't work when you lay down. And we had. Uh, <laughs> I'm not familiar with <laughs> <yep>. that one. <laughs> <laughs> the old name was ismalin, <laughs> guanethidine. We used methyl dopa, uh-huh. and you. There's reports in JAMA back years ago when people were using the alpha methyldopa aldamat that physicians would go, they'd have a patient in the room, they'd forget the patient was there and leave the building because they were taking methyldopa and their mentation was impaired from the drug and they wouldn't remember a patient was in the room. Oh my gosh. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was the number one prescribed drug for hypertension for a long time. Really? Reserpine was being used routinely mm-hmm. Ooh, so your blood, pressure was, new drugs. your blood pressure was controlled but you may leave a patient in the room <laughs> that's, right. that's the commercial you may forget important things yes. <laughs> so all these landmark trials for the like hypertension drugs or even diabetes drugs um some of them that we use now i mean you were just there when they came out so were you following all of these and they came out you're just yeah, you know, the, spreading the, the word to everybody trial was the was the joint national committee jnc uh, one in 1975, and the uh, VA cooperative trial for hypertension 
was the one that used a combination of hydralazine, reserpine, and hydrochlorothiazide, a triple combo. All your favorite drugs. <laughs> yep. All your favorite <laughs> but drugs. But that's really all one. we had back then. Yeah. And that was 1971. Wow. That's when I was graduating. That's, that's interesting. When first, first one came out for blood pressure. So one of the, the myths about the great Dr. Wirt, if the, all the students tell each other, is that you have a photographic memory. And they say that when, you're, when you close your eyes, when you're talking about, sometimes you'll close your eyes when you're thinking real hard, and they say that that's because you're reading and the stuff you've off the back of your eyelids <laughs> that you have saved there. That's a very, I wish. I wish. <laughs> so can, we, so do you, so can you answer that question? Do you have a photographic memory? I don't, but there's a reason I remember things. What, that's because I use them all the time. There you go. How, how often do I answer questions? How often do we have bar and grill and we go over the same stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. So that I, I know <laughs> the for, more you use it, the better it sticks. For me personally, I rem, I remember thinking very clearly that like after listening to you talk through trials and stuff at bar and grill, probably the first time because the first time I ever went was in February of 2015, and I remember hearing you talk, and I'm just I remember thinking there's zero chance I'll ever be able to do that. Uh, I guess I was just like, how, how can, is, how is that possible? And then the more I went and the more I had students and, and now I forget what I was doing the other day, but we were, I was going over some stuff with uh, a student and he's like, man, I don't know how you rattle this stuff off the top of your head. And then I realized, I was like, oh my gosh, after f- practicing all these years, it's starting to actually <laughs> make sense. <laughs> it turns out like it's like anything else. You have to practice a lot. <laughs> it's my Alzheimer prevention resume. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So I heard I, you got to tell me if this is true because this is a story I heard um, from uh, Mark Lapointe. But he told me that I, I think he said he was when he was a resident or maybe when he was you know recently on faculty with the college. But he says he remembers seeing you um, regularly coming out of the library with some kind of like a wagon or something that you were using to carry stuff, and you were bringing all the journals that they were trying to throw away or recycle or whatever it was then, um, bringing them back to your office so you could read through all of them. Is that a true okay. story? Almost. It's a little bit uh, exaggerated, but it's almost true. Okay. In the old days, we didn't have the journals online, right? Right. The only place I could find the journals was in the library. I had to go physically to the library multiple times a week, go through the various journals I wanted to keep up with, and look. And then I either brought them back to the office and Xerox to copy, or I filled out a – I used what was called current contents – where I would send the author of the article a postcard requesting they send me a copy of the article and have my secretary send those out in the mail. And I would send out 50 to 70 current content requests a week. (laughs) So I was in the library three to four days a week for several hours at a time. Wow. Because there was no other way to keep up. So that wasn't just reading it. That wasn't just reading it. That was just finding the actual art, the journals. Getting it to read. That's crazy. Oh my goodness. To research the various things. So I'd use the I'd use the uh, card catalog, I'd use the index medicus, I'd use current contents to determine what I needed to go find. And I'd look at the index for all the new journals when they came out in the current journal section. I'd go through them to make sure I was hitting them to make sure I was up to date on what was happening. So what you're saying is none of us have any excuse not to be up to date on stuff. <laughs> It's a whole lot easier today, my yeah, friend. Yeah, exactly. 
I was going to say, you know what's way easier than that is laying in your bed with your iPhone 11 <laughs> that brings the articles directly to you nightly. And you, don't, yes. you, you don't even have to lift your head up. <laughs> oh, my finger's so tired from swiping. <laughs> no, I can't do that. It's too small on my iPhone. I can't read that stuff. <laughs> and I'd fall asleep if I'm laying in my bed. Right. <laughs> I can do it on my computer screen here, but I can't do it in my iPhone. So, so I'm just going to play this audio clip whenever I have any students to complain about it taking too long to look up something. I'm just going to go, you have no idea how good it is now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't have to leave your practice site. Yeah. 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 You, you can do it in your office or wherever you are. You technically don't even have to leave your couch if you want to. <laughs> That's right. So in another in the old days, we had to physically go to the medical library to get the stuff. And in another sense, you could almost say so that that would because you were willing to to put in the work and do that, that made you very valuable back then because not too many people did that or or had the motivation to do that or had time to do that or whatever. So now you would think that with information being so easily accessible, it would actually make it harder to justify just being, you know, a, a clinical reference for somebody because, you know, they can they can look it up. So I guess it it does. It, I guess you have to be on your A game a lot because they would just say, "Well, I can just look this up on PubMed in five minutes." You know, why do I need you, pharmacist? Yeah, but they have to realize it's there first. Right there, you go. Yeah, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> they've got to know what they're looking up. That's right. Cole. If they don't know to look it up, they don't look it up. But um, before we started recording, we, we were talking, waiting on Cole. Um, you were saying that you've done some new drug updates this uh, this month, and you were saying that you have to. Uh, go over the new asthma guidelines that are a year old as of today because people don't even know they exist yet. <laughs> right. It's- and back in December, I did two meetings here in Charleston. I did one for the Department of Pediatrics down at the Francis Marion. I did another for a meeting down in Florida and Hawks K. And between the two meetings were about 600 primary care providers. Not a single person in the audience raised their hand when they said, are you guys aware of the new asthma guidelines that are suggesting we might not should be using albuterol, PRN, by itself? Really? Not a single person raised their hand. That's fascinating. So maybe it's just because, I don't know, is it because we do a podcast? Because I felt like that was huge news when it came out for it us. Was, it's but hard to believe. But our physicians haven't heard it. That's, that's fascinating. Well, let me, let me give you something more ridiculous than that. Did you see the... Update on asthma that was published in Annals of Internal Medicine, October of 2019. Yes. Mm-hmm. What did it say? Are you talking about where they were talking? They were discussing the use of the albuterol, um, or not? I'm sorry, not albuterol, but using the Simbicort, um, but not if you're also on a like daily corticosteroid no. as well. This guideline from the American College of Physicians in Annals of Internal Medicine, still references the 2018 GINA guidelines. Oh, no. they're referencing the old guidelines. Right. Oh and my it's gosh. November of 2019, Annals of Internal Medicine, or October of 2019. So how is that possible? That they don't Nobody want- went back to... They- they were not aware of the new guideline. They're making a guideline. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't decide research to look at... I wonder if anybody else has made a new guideline recently. That's. I mean, that blows my mind. Like that that's even uh, that because when you think of people at that level writing those kind of things, you'd expect those people to be like the cream of the absolute crop as far as research and digging as deep as they possibly could. But I don't know. That's surprising. 
They referenced the 2018 GINA guidelines in November of 2019. Don't mention the April 2019 GINA guidelines at all. <laughs> hmm. They're still promoting PRN albuterol. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that is. See, that's why we need you around, Dr. Work, to spread the word to all the physicians. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that is fascinating to me is that the famotorol piece, nobody's talking about because nobody can talk about it on label. Right. Since it's an off-label yep. thing and the manufacturer is not planning to do it because it's going to be generic. Mm-hmm. So that you mean, so, you mean no one's talking about it as far as like the, um, the reps and stuff going around? Yeah. Yeah. And the reps are not interested in it because they're going to, they're going to downplay it because it's not going to benefit them. Right. So will it, I mean, will it ever be FDA approved for that then? Is there some way to like retrofit it after it's, you know, been in practice for a while? We'll see the, I think we'll see the FDA do with it what they did with metformin because uh, BMS never submitted the indication for the dosing change for metformin and the FDA went ahead and did it. Because right. they weren't going to pay the FDA to review it when it was already available generically. I think that's what's going to happen with Simbacort. Gotcha. But yep. I don't know when and if it'll happen, but that's what's going to probably have to happen. Right. We've we've had great success with switching people from albuterol PRN to Simbacort PRN at our clinic. Yep. Um, uh, like everything, every one of the, especially the mid-levels were the first ones to kind of jump on it. The nurse practitioners and PAs have all said that their patients have been doing better. Um, one of our, one of our MDs said that, uh, they put her own daughter on it and said she's been doing better. So <laughs> it's pretty, uh, it's pretty interesting that. Yeah. And if you look at the, the study that they reference in the guidelines, it's a 64% reduction in exacerbations when you switch to an ICS plus albuterol or Simbacort versus albuterol by itself. Yeah, it's definitely, uh. What's interesting, that's that that episode that we did on the new guidelines got probably the most downloads out of most mm-hmm. of our episodes. Yeah. Because people were probably like, what are they talking about? Right. <laughs> we Who finally, else is talking about it? Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's crazy. I didn't, I actually didn't even realize it because I guess because we talked about it so much at our, my small clinic mm-hmm. that I, I haven't really, I didn't realize there was still this many, this big of a population that has no idea that it even exists. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, as far as going through your career, I mean, how, you speak um, at all these major conferences and things like that. Did that start pretty early on in your career? Did that kind of build up as time went on? How did that kind of happen? It started when I was at West Virginia University, and I got to do a couple of – well, I was doing a noon conference every month. And I did that here at MUSC when I first came here. So I did a drug-related noon conference in family medicine once a month, every month. And – then some of the pharmaceutical companies asked me if I'd do some things for local uh, medical societies. So the Roper people, I still have been doing Roper now for almost 40 years, conferences for them. I just did one in February, just before this uh, quarantine happened at the uh, uh, country club, a new drug update. And the way I do it is I'd usually give about 30 minutes on the front end on some things I think they need to know based on what else was covered during that seminar, and then I open it up for questions. What do you want to talk about related to primary care? And I don't know of any other speaker who does that, but I do that at multiple meetings every year around the country. I do a, used to a one-hour just general Q&A. 
what do you want to talk about? Do you ever get no takers or is it usually a pretty vibrant discussion for the hour? Most of the time they come from everywhere. Yeah. And there's some times that I, say, I really don't know. I can't, I'll see if I can find the answer to that, but I have no idea. I've not seen that anywhere. Uh, but it happens. And most of the time the questions are things that they see in practice every day and they need to want to know what the answers are. What should I do and why? Do you feel like, cause I, do you feel like you're like a competitive person? I know it's kind of a weird question, but I know for, for like me personally, I am a very competitive person and um, with backgrounds in sports and stuff. And so I, I kind of have just kind of transitioned that competitiveness over to pharmacy. That's kind of how I've still, you know, stayed motivated because I have like this invisible opponent that's not, you know, really actually competing against me, but it's more like competing against myself to keep up with everything. When I get a question and I don't know the answer, it's not like I'm afraid to say that I'm wrong or anything. So I'll be very honest if I don't know the answer, but internally I'm like, come on, man, you gotta go, you gotta work harder than that. And I, I'll start researching it all weekend. Do you, do you have a little bit of that as well? I feel like you yep, have to. I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. And, uh, I have a lot of energy and enthusiasm when I make my presentation. So, uh, I, sometimes I get a little carried away, but that's okay. <laughs> Cause I feel like I'm doing what I again was called to do. This has been my calling and my career, my hobby, my job. It's all rolled into one. Yeah, that's, I mean, looking at everything you've done over your career, I mean, because how, how many times are you speaking right now? Like, I mean, currently, because you've, you've, you were supposed to retire a long time ago and you just, <laughs> just keep on going back to work. <laughs> well, I failed retirement 10 years ago, October 31st of last year. <laughs> so I'm in my 11th year retired. Uh, but I do... At the, my peak, I was doing about 120, 130 presentations a year. Wow. And now I'm doing 50 to 60. Wow. Only 50 to 60? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I did two last year. I was like, whoo. Man, <laughs> that is that's insane. Yeah, that is awesome. Yeah. You have one in, I think it's Key West, isn't it, that you literally just stand in front of a room of all these primary care docs and ask, they ask you questions for three hours? No, that's the that's one of the hours out of the two hours I do with them every year. Okay, I actually do seven of those meetings a year. For it's called a, a CME meeting, and it's a primary care group that usually has three hundred people in the audience. And I've done two of those in the last two weeks, but they've been virtual now. Mm. But I only had about two hundred in the audience the last two times because they had to cancel the meetings. So they're both supposed to be at Palm Coast, Florida. And uh, the first hour I do the new drug update, I talked about COVID-19. I talked about immunizations, uh, the asthma guidelines, and some of the new lipid stuff. And then opened it up to whatever they want to talk about, Q&A, for an hour. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, as far as if you had, if, if you had to go back and, and do it all over again, was there anything you would change or do differently? No, not a thing. That's awesome. I would not change a thing. I have been so blessed. I might take a little better care of myself on the front end than I did. <laughs> but other than that, I wouldn't change my career at all. I'd do everything all over again. That's awesome. So I have been so blessed. So what's the um, – obviously, you work with students daily, but um, for our listeners around the country that don't know you personally, you know, what's some advice you have for going from – student to you know continuing to grow as a pharmacist and how do you what's the like what's the first baby steps they take to kind of stay on the right path well first i have to 
admit that I need to be a student every day of my life. If there's days that goes by that I don't learn something new, I haven't done my job. So I will never know everything. The day I think I know everything is the day they need to put me six feet underground. <laughs> I really believe that. And that's been something I've believed all along. And I also believe you've got to be willing, every time I get involved with a patient case or patient care, get a question, I want to treat that question as if that question was relating to my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my best friend. And if I haven't done that, I haven't done my job. If I just think about it passing and off the cuff give an answer, that's not what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. You know, one, one thing I've, I've always admired, I guess, from, you know, studying under you for the last several years is it, there's a lot of ego in medicine, right? And, and there's a lot of people that, I mean, because there's a lot of people that worked really hard to get to where they're at and they, the pride kind of sets in and they're, you know, very, um, happy to talk about their accomplishments and things <laughs> like that. And one thing I've always noticed with you, cause I've always looked at it as like, if anyone has any right to be arrogant or prideful in pharmacy it's you because because you've done so much and you're probably the most humble person i've ever talked to um when it comes to that as far as like oh i need to learn every day and the second i think i know it all you know sick i need to be six feet under I me mean, that's stuff that most people do, that's completely opposite of the way most people think and i know i'm it's not even a question i'm just telling you i i i have greatly appreciated you know from my point of view learning that from you is i the second i feel like i'm like getting confident. I mean, not confident, but, uh, like, Oh, I got this whole pharmacotherapy thing down. I, I just, I'm like, I need to go hang out with you so I can get humbled <laughs> really quick and realize how, <laughs> how far I need to go still. And, um, no, it's, it's been really good. Cause I've, that made a big impact on me as well. Like seeing how you, you know, kind of conducted yourself with that and realizing how much more information is out there that you could never learn at all. Um, I try to keep that in my mind as well when I'm, cause I'm, like I said, I'm ultra competitive and I want to constantly, you know, learn more and, and progress, but keeping that humble side, I think is something that's tough to do and you do it very well. Well, I've, like I said, I've truly been blessed every step along the way and I couldn't have asked for a better career for better students or residents to work with over the years. There's just a, it's a cast of characters that I, I could never have put together on my own. The last thing, uh, and I'll let you, it's getting late, but um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, I've never seen it, but I hear you have a pretty amazing uh, like pharmacy museum in your house now. Is that true yes, still? I have, yes, I have two full rooms. I have a American apothecary from probably the turn of the century, and I have an English apothecary from the turn of the century. So when, and when did it's that worth probably more than my house. I started <laughs> right. collecting when I was a PharmD student in Philadelphia. When I the first item I got, I pulled out of the trash can at Episcopal Hospital the summer I started in the summer of 1974. I worked part time in the ambulatory pharmacy, and there were these uh, I think four reverse on glass bottles that had still had the chemicals in them and had the ground glass toppers and I asked the pharmacist you're throwing these away and he said yeah you want them I said yeah I'm going to take them home so those are my first four items I have still in my collection but right now I have probably I think I've got the biggest collection in the state of South Carolina by far <laughs> that's awesome uh, 
But it's two full rooms. I had to build a room onto the house for part of it. Did but you really? Americans. Yeah. That is that's the best story I've ever heard. My, my <laughs> like me and Mike have, or or mostly Mike has you know obviously made a podcast studio in his house. How in the world do you convince your wife to let you build on an extra room? I was just to about put in to a ask farm the same museum. question. How need- about two or three to one? Who? So she got she got the dining room built out. She got the kitchen redone. She got the sunroom put on. She that, had our bedroom mm, enlarged. That's the key. I got a room for I got a room for my museum. So that's God. how it's done. You may have just taught us the most valuable lesson of the whole podcast, right there. <laughs> it's yes, dear. <laughs> so ba- after 50, 51 years of marriage, it's yes, dear. There you go. So basically, I, I need to get Jen that pool she's been asking about, and then I can ask for a, a bigger podcast studio. <laughs> That's right. There we go. Yes. We, we have to share the wealth. There you go. <laughs> so uh, since it's the – You guys have to come over because I, I enjoy showing it off. I've yeah, got, I got to uh, see it. That's, I've got that's quite intense. a collection. So I was just going to say, since it's the biggest in South Carolina, are you cool with us maybe uh, bringing some cameras in there and actually putting this <laughs> yeah. all over the internet so we can show people what the real yes. top collection looks like in South Carolina? Yep. That would be I've got great. stuff that I can show you that would take more than a week just to go through the stuff that I have and show you how to use it. That is awesome. I've That's got awesome. 26 different show globes. Whew. I've got about 15 different pill machines. I've got about six different capsule fillers, a bunch of different tablet makers. I've got uh, probably eight or ten different pharmaceutical scales. I've got uh, cachet makers. I've got uh, powder paper folders. I've got a dozen different cork presses. Uh, you name it, I have it, and I'll show you how to use it. Awesome. That's awesome. Do you still, uh, <laughs> do you still collect, like, add things to the collection now? Yes. All right. I do. Where do you find that kind of stuff at these days? I mean, you just go to older pharmacies or? No, they're hard to find now. So I've got uh, one guy who has a pharmacy museum up in Binghamton, New York, that I took my wife to. We visited him back in uh, the fall. We took a trip up, Terry McMurray. He does a quarterly uh, mail telephone auction. So I buy some things from Terry. There are auctions from time to time from major auction houses I buy things on. And then collectors will call me sometimes saying, I've got this. Would you be interested? Hmm. I mean, I've got some, I've got some one-of-a-kind items. I have the – do you guys know who Daniel B. Smith was? I don't do not. No, I don't think so. Daniel B. Smith was the first president of APHA. Hmm. Okay. He was a founder of Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and Science when it, before it started. We, he was the, the secretary of the uh, Philadelphia College of Apothecaries that founded Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and Science. Well, I have his actual fellowship certificate hanging on the wall in my museum. Really? Wow. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got some unique things. I've got some uh, show globes that most people have not seen before. I've got some. Uh, I've got a pill machine that is homemade, homemade. It's made with cow carved cow horn instead of metal, so it could re- wouldn't react with whatever you were using that might react with metal. Hmm. I've got some pill counting devices that are homemade. Uh, lots of different things. Most people would have no idea what they are. That's very cool. So we're definitely going to have to do a, For sure. a, a video walkthrough. A one-hour special of the yes. uh, 
Was the Wayne Ward collection. Wayne Ward, yeah. I've got a pill towel from the London Society of Apothecaries from the late 1700s. Jeez. <laughs> so, yeah, I've, I've got a pretty good collection. That it's sounds more pretty than good. my house. <laughs> you can buy it. That is awesome. Well, um, the uh, the last, I one I do have one more question that I just kind of popped in my head when you said uh, APHA one because I've noticed that because you you have you're a fellow of both APHA and ASHP um, how how long ago did that happen for you and what was was it just because of your contributions to the the profession itself that led to that I don't know I had you had to be nominated and apply so I had to submit my credentials and then they had a committee. Uh, approve it and gave me the fellowship recognition. Uh, so I don't know. I've been involved in primary care, family medicine, pharmacy for almost 50 years now. So I'm sure that's why. But I had been probably 25, 30 years in the profession when uh, I got both of those recognitions. Wow. That's awesome. And I need to clarify one thing. I am no longer board certified in pharmacotherapy. I let it lapse in December. I decided not to take the exam the fourth time. Hmm. I was going to say, we all know what would happen, though, if you took that exam. Right. <laughs> I decided I wasn't going to continue to pay for it. Yeah, I was going to say, you're basically just paying for the letters at that point. Right. It should be an honorary thing. Yeah. I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm probably going to write a letter because that's not be, cool. There should be an endowment. Just bestow him a uh, lifetime BCPS. Yeah. Uh, so I was in the first group that got certified. Were you really? I didn't yes. realize that. That's awesome. So I took the exam the first time, and then I, I retook the exam my second, third, and fourth re-ups because I've been. I think I was 28 years as a board, cert, board certified pharmacotherapy specialist, but I, I'm giving it up as of December. It's no longer. Mm. I remember, uh, and I asked you one time when I was first thinking about taking it, I was asking some questions about it, and I, I asked about the CE, and you said, well, I don't really do, the, I don't do the actual required CE for it, I just retake the test. And I, I hated like, the CE. It, it, yeah, and I, mean, you, I cracked up when you told me that. You go, I don't agree with a lot of that anyway. <laughs> I don't agree with a lot of what they wanted to do, and why? So. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> it was out of date. That's my favorite. You're like, I'm not reading this nonsense. This is all outdated. I'll just take the test again. Just because when you wrote this, that was the right answer. It's not today. So that's not, I don't want to go there. No, that's funny. That's awesome. <laughs> that's how fast it changes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Ware, you are definitely the legend um, and the, the, the best that I've ever seen by far. So I really appreciate taking the time to share some you know, your history with us and um, talk to us on this late Saturday night. Oh, my pleasure. You guys, you guys are a real inspiration. So thank you for what you're doing. You're doing a great thing. Yes, sir. Well, um, thank you, uh, everyone listening. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to, to listen to our podcast and the support you guys give us. It means the world. Um, episode 100, like we're shocked that we, yeah. we were just texting back and forth earlier. Like, I cannot believe this has actually been a hundred episodes. Um, we joke around a lot. We say a lot of nonsense, but f absolutely from the bottom of my heart. And I know Cole says the same thing. Thank you guys so much for listening and the support. Um, emails and stuff that we get have, have been awesome. This is like that favorite thing that I do in my career. And, uh, definitely we will keep trying to improve it and make it better and try to, uh, improve for you guys, um, each month. So that we're not just staying stagnant, but, um, 
you know, if there's anything we can ever do, please uh, shoot us an email. They'll be in the show notes. Uh, you can reach us on any of the social media platforms. If you have a specific question that you would rather do over um, text, you can use our new texting platform. Um, phone number is going to be area code 415-943-6116. You can text the number and uh, it'll log in our phone book and then we, you can text us in real time. I feel like more and more people are taking advantage of that now, which is pretty <laughs> cool. And um, other than that, let us know if you have any topics you want us to cover. And we really appreciate it again for all the support. Thank you guys. Have a good night.